There were pictures of people in Hong Kong running around in surgical masks and in Singapore. The reality was 95% of the cases in Hong Kong actually occurred in five apartment blocks. The media never mentioned that. SARS was rampant in Hong Kong. It wasn't that terrible. And in fact, there was no need for governments to close borders or do all the things that they've actually done there. Welcome to Upon Arrival, a show that uncovers stories and strategies that make up all the moving parts of business events tourism with me, Adelaine Ung. You might be tempted to think that this COVID-19 pandemic won't be letting up anytime soon. And I wouldn't blame you. After all, how many times have we planned for a return to events and travel over the past 20 months only to have to cancel because of government lockdown rules or self-cancelling our plans because they weren't viable anymore. So I thought it would be helpful to speak to a good friend of this podcast, Dr. David Bierman. David is a tourism crisis risk and recovery expert from University Technology Sydney, whose views have been highly sought after by both local and international media. He's also published a book looking at over 20 cases of crisis and recovery in the tourism industry including a whole section on the current pandemic to give us some perspective about the challenges the industry is facing today. Also to note, at the time of this interview, the world number one tennis player Novak Djokovic had just been unceremoniously deported from the Australian Open after a series of mismanaged communication saw him arrive in Melbourne believing he was cleared to play despite his unvaccinated status. It made global headlines and divided communities everywhere. Will that impact Australia's image for tourism too? Here's my chat with Dr. Bierman. Well, David Bierman, welcome back to the show. And it's lovely to be back, Adeline. We're at the end of January at the time of this recording, but what a year already with Omricon still disrupting everything, people still feeling blare because of that, and that saga that was Novak Djokovic and the Australian Open. So a lot of people are not feeling the optimism that usually comes with the new year, at least not in our industry. But you read things more deeply than most people, you know, being a researcher and authority in this space. What's your general feeling for the events and tourism industry for this year, 2022? How optimistic are you? I'm optimistic that I think probably in the second half of the year we're going to start recovering. The year started as badly as it could possibly start. We've had Omicron, we've had events being cancelled, as you mentioned, the Djokovic saga, which was very badly handled, I think, from all sides. Things looked terrible. I know even from a personal perspective, I've been involved in a conference that I was really looking forward to. It was going to be a hybrid conference, part live part online and now it's all online and you know as much as you can do a lot of very very good work on online it's not the same as being able to network with colleagues and friends and speak to people face to face I mean they're really you really start to appreciate I went to a conference at the end of last year that was run by the Centre for Aviation it too was a hybrid conference and this is a little bit before Omicron it was very early December People really enjoyed the freedom of being able to talk to each other, uh, meet each other. So, so those human things, I think you really appreciate when you don't have the human aspects, whether it's weddings, whether it's funerals, whether it's conferences, whether it's any type of interaction, when you don't have that human element in it, it detracts somewhat. And I think we started to appreciate because we thought at the end of the year we were going to be 
over this. But yeah. unfortunately, Omicron, the Omicron variant had other ideas. And it's been, you know, a really quite a shock to the system, not only here in Australia, but all over the world. It's had a massive impact. So I think it's been a question, a situation, particularly for the early part of this year, that we have taken some steps back. But there's also some optimism amongst health professionals in particular that Omicron is going to end its course. Mind you, of course, there could be something else that comes up and uh, we, we can't. We can't re- One thing is that we cannot presume that this is all over. But I think being, trying to be both realistic and optimistic, I think by the second half of this year, we should be starting to see a bounce back in tourism. It's a lot later than everybody thought. Uh, yeah. A lot later than I thought as well, too. And who knows, really? I mean, we all thought that, you know, way back in March 2020, that, you know, it would be over in a couple of months. Yeah. And then it was pushed back a little bit. And here we are still almost two years later. So who really knows? But, you know, since I've mentioned Novak Djokovic and the events that saw him deported from Australia, no matter where you land on his vaccine status, this was someone who received mixed messages about his ability to play in Melbourne. And he's he also did. donated a lot of money to help Australia's devastating bushfires. So yeah. some commentators have suggested that this is bad, that Australian tourism now has a full-on image crisis after all the other reports that have gone on globally in past months about how heavy-handed policing and how many of our citizens are still having trouble getting home from overseas, especially if you live in Western Australia. I mean, what do you think? Does Australia have an image crisis that could hurt tourism? I don't know if we'd call it an image crisis, but we definitely have an image problem. I mean, it's interesting that you mentioned the Djokovic case because Tennis Australia had made it very clear to Djokovic that he had kind of passed all the tests. So there was one message coming from Tennis Australia. There was another message that was actually coming from the government. And in fairness to the Australian government, made it very clear that if you weren't double vaxxed, you weren't allowed in here into Australia, no matter who you were. But I can understand from Djokovic's point of view, he had assumed that Tennis Australia had received an all clear from the government, which it actually hadn't, but but he is but he wasn't wrong to assume that. We also had a Department of Home Affairs giving the okay, seemingly. So yeah. it did seem really messy on our end. It was very messy. Certainly we can put it this way. Australia is probably the most unpopular destination for anybody from Serbia. Uh, <laughs> right now, or anybody who's friendly with Serbia, you know, uh, when you have the Eurovision Song Contest and you have different countries that vote with each other, well, all the friends of Serbia will probably be saying Australia's are an absolutely dreadful place. From a political point of view, it was certainly a diabolical disaster, particularly with the bad publicity. And, and of course, you had a court case which exonerated Djokovic, and then you had the minister... Mr. Hawke, who was saying, sorry, the court decision was wrong. This is our decision. And I can certainly understand from a government point of view that you need to have consistency about entry requirements. And this was a really incredible and very high-profile example of where there wasn't consistency. And this is a very harsh lesson we're going to have to learn. I do think probably within a few weeks this will become fish and chip wrappers 
because people do have fairly short memories about things like this, but certainly in places that which were most affected, particularly Serbia, we're going to be unpopular for a long time. In fact, the only Serbians that will probably come out here are people with relatives in this country, and they'll probably be very careful about whether they're vaccinated or not. One of the interesting things about COVID-19 overall has been the incredible level in which government has dominated every aspect of the agenda. So whether we're talking about social distancing or quarantine regulations or vaccinations or anything like that, it's all been government. And that that's had a huge effect, of course, not only on tourism, but pretty much every aspect of our life. You know, whether you go to a restaurant, whether you go to church, whether you go to a party, <laughs> we've even had the British Prime Minister get himself into a lot of hot water over his penchant for a good party. <laughs> yes, I do want to get more into you know what the future of tourism holds a little bit later on, especially with government control seemingly now the biggest determinant of the future of tourism. So that's a really interesting question. But this pandemic doesn't seem to want to end. What do you think this is costing us if anyone is still counting? Well, just in terms of percentages, in 2020 and 2021, tourism was about 95% down. This is international air flight tourism was about 97% down on what it was in 2019. So the big hope, particularly here in Australia in November, when we started to actually have flights resuming to the UK and USA and Fiji and a few other destinations, there was this real hope that all of a sudden everybody would start travelling. And Omicron put the big spanner in the works because it wasn't so much that people were afraid of dying from the disease. In fact, actually, the Omicron variant is probably the mildest of all of the, the variants in terms of mortality rates. However, what happened is that when people decided that they wanted to travel, then they started to look at what are they going to do when they're traveling. And every couple of days, in just about every major destination in the world, they were going to have to get a test for which they would have to pay and many of the insurance companies weren't going to cover it. So I had a, a colleague of mine who, her and her husband went to Fiji just in December. They got a great deal for the travel, but the cost of the tests was so enormous that it actually nullified any benefit they really got from the travel. And that was also happening for people who were travelling to Europe and to a lesser extent to North America. And Omicron, of course, we were going to have this bubble opening up with Singapore. That's been postponed for a little while because Singapore, for very obvious reasons, wants to make sure that they're being very careful about who they let in. And we've had countries who had previously opened their borders saying, sorry, you can't come anymore. And this included probably the most travelled area and destination in the world, the UK and France. So the French actually closed their borders to British travellers, mainly because of the concerns about the rate of Omicron. And this is really an interesting thing. In the beginning of December, we ranked around about 100th in the world for the number of cases of uh, COVID-19. A week ago, we ranked at number 25 in the world. That's incredible. Not so much in terms of deaths, but certainly in the number of cases. So Omicron has unfortunately even though it might be relatively mild compared to other variants like the Delta variant, it certainly put the skids on tourism recovery, at least in the short term anyway. Yeah, I think people are still taking a very 
maybe some might say overly cautious approach um, to Omicron. So even though indications are that the symptoms are fairly mild, Mm -hmm. they're still saying, you know, what if our hospital systems can't cope and we just can't afford to have that situation on our hands? Um, Mm -hmm. So there are whole spin-offs of that conversation, but the reality is that the reopening or recovery of tourism is a whole lot slower than we thought. Well, the International Air Transport Association had basically predicted that international airline travel wouldn't really recover till about 2024. So that, to me, sounds like a fairly sober type of prediction. There were certainly, there, there have always been people, obviously, in all sectors of the tourism industry who were hoping that things were going to recover a lot more quickly. I mean, one of the big frustrations, if you look at a particular sector, has been cruising. Now, cruising, in my humble opinion, has been given a really, really difficult time by governments, particularly in Australia and New Zealand, but certainly not exclusively so. So Cruise Lines International actually at the end of 2021 was saying, well, Australia should be much more generous about cruising because, you know, the American government is letting Americans cruise in the caravans. Well, that was true up until the end of December, of course, in January, when Omicron started to become a big problem for cruisers that were going to the caravan. A lot of cruisers have actually been suspended. So even in the places that were considered to be most friendly to cruising, there have been restrictions. And of course, here in Australia, the government has been really difficult with cruising. And the thing that makes it so unfair is that the cruise sector has probably done more to try and minimise the risk of COVID-19 than probably any sector in all of the tourism and hospitality industry. They've had a a crisis management or risk management system in place since 1914, which was called solar saving of life at sea. But in recent years, what they've done is that they've changed a whole lot of protocols on cruising. So a person couldn't go on a cruise unless they were at least double vaxxed, that they had testing a couple of days before they went on the cruise, but that doesn't stop Omicron. And the thing that's been difficult about COVID-19 is that so many people are asymptomatic. So you can have COVID-19, but you have no symptoms whatsoever. You go around as healthy as a lark, spreading the disease without thinking about it because you don't know that you have it. And this has been one of the big problems with this particular pandemic, that a lot of people who actually have the disease are unaware. I could be, I feel fine, but I could. Yeah, <laughs> or you have could have all knowing. the symptoms and only test positive on day 10. Yeah, that's right. Exactly, (laughs) exactly. Um, I mean, it's been interesting. I know one thing that I did put in my book, which was different from what all the other authors have done, was really look at the paradigms of tourism. So just as an example, before 2020, most people, particularly in developed countries, saw tourism as a right. Since COVID-19, it's now, in a sense, become a privilege You could only go to destinations where borders were open. Um, Travel bubbles haven't always worked. Well, I'm actually doing a chapter in a upcoming book about travel bubbles. And, you know, if we look at the Australian-New Zealand travel bubble, which is an example of how not to do a travel bubble, uh, it started (laughs) off with New Zealanders being allowed to come to Australia, but Australians not being allowed to come to New Zealand. We had this very brief period in mid-2021 where people could travel in both directions. And then when we had the Delta problems arising, say, around about uh, late July 
2021, the New Zealand government said, right, don't want you lot coming over there. And what's been interesting is if you look at the Australasian situation, the government of Western Australia and the government of New Zealand have almost the same policy. So they're yeah. amongst the couple of standout Kissing uh, jur- jurors, <laughs> yeah, jurisdictions who are saying we have to get rid of COVID-19. And really the only way you can do that is to cut yourself off from the rest of the world, which both New Zealand and Western Australia have done quite successfully. But eventually, you know, we are an open world and whether Mr McGowan in Western Australia or Jacinda Ardern, who sadly has postponed her wedding because of her own regulations, yeah, they are going to have to face the fact that they cannot be separated from the rest of the world forever. Yeah. Which is those policies have worked very well to keep both of them in political power, you know, and good luck to them. But I think we are a global society. People want to see relatives, people want to see friends, people want to go to weddings, funerals, engagement parties. You cannot indefinitely keep people separated from each other. Yeah, I do have family in Western Australia, so I do know a couple of, or more than a couple of stories um, that are just written with a lot of pain um, because of those hard borders. But you mentioned air travel. A a couple of weeks ago, you were all over the media saying that the days of cheap travel could be over. And that's something you mentioned on this show almost a year ago as well. Yes. Uh, When do you think that will actually start to happen? Because airfares are still pretty reasonable at the moment. Well, at this particular point of time, the airlines themselves want to get to put use their parlance bums on seats. So in order to get <laughs> bums on seats, you need to offer uh, travel and, and airfares at a very attractive price to do that. So there will be a little honeymoon that will go perhaps for a few months. I don't want to put an exact timeline on it. Uh, that will enable people to take advantage of some good deals. And one of the reasons the airlines are doing this is they also are very well aware that the cost of travel particularly international travel with the testing and everything that goes with COVID is actually going to be high. So you need something to entice people to fly in the first place. The fundamental problem with the airline industry, and it's not just the, and I hasten to say it's not just the airline industry, it's most sectors in tourism, is for 50 years, basically from 1970 to 2020, most sectors of the tourism industry, but especially airlines, operated on the assumption that if you had a low price and you filled your planes, we call it high turnover, low yield. It's that model of tourism. So if you had lots of uh, 90% occupancy on a flight, even though the airlines were only making US $10 per passenger, which is really tiny, and I'm talking on a $2,000 fare, that's like half of 1%. If your flights are full, you're still going to make a profit. The problem is is that COVID, of course, turned that model completely upside down. Many flights were going empty. There are even stories on the internet of people who are travelling by themselves in a, a 737 or a 787, which is fantastic for the passenger, but it's pretty <laughs> All diabolical. four seats to myself. <laughs> well, the problem is half the cost of an airline are fuel. And it will vary a little bit. If you're a low-cost carrier, it'll be 60%. If you're a full-service carrier, it's 40%. Now, that fuel varies in price according to what the price of oil is. But the thing is, 
the costs of running flights are actually quite significant. And if you don't have a full load of passengers, then you actually have to charge higher fares just to cover your costs. And airlines have been afraid to do that because it's been very competitive. And they've always thought that there would be some kind of government rescue plan in place. And for government-owned airlines like Emirates and Etihad and Singapore Airlines and others, governments usually will bail airlines out. If you're a privately owned airline, as Qantas is and British Airways and many other carriers around the world, you can't necessarily expect that the government's going to bail you out. So eventually, realism is unfortunately going to come into the airline market, which is going to say, we need to charge fares that will give us enough margin that should we have another pandemic or another crisis, we have some money to fall back on. And if you look at other industries, the computer industry, the fashion industry, just about every other area has much, much higher yields in their pricing than the tourism industry. And I have to say, it's not only airlines. I worked as a travel agent for 10 years and travel agents were quite happy to make practically next to nothing. I can say this because it doesn't exist anymore, but when I used to work for Jetset, we would turn over $2.5 billion a year and we would make a profit of one or two million, which sounds nice. Yeah. <laughs> it's better than making a loss. But, you know, when you think of that turnover, if you were doing the same turnover in the computer industry, you'd probably be making six or seven hundred million dollar profit. Yeah. So that type of model can only work if it's running at full capacity. As soon as it stops running at full capacity, it becomes a problem. And I think a lot of businesses in all sectors of the tourism industry are just going to have to become a bit more hard-nosed about how much they charge for their services. Yeah, they're just trying to be sensible about the prices. Yeah. But by how much do you think prices will will rise going Well, I th- they'll probably need to rise, I guess if you talk about official prices, they probably need to rise at least probably 10% above what they were in 2019. So airlines were making a reasonable kind of margin. That doesn't mean that there still won't be cheap fares because what the smart operators will do is you can say you can fly from Sydney to London from $1,500 and people will say, oh, that's pretty good, but you might only have three seats at that price. (laughs) Right. Okay. And the same thing can happen in other areas. So again, it's a little bit of a question about how you're going to effectively market something so that it looks okay but in realistic fact it's still going to run at a profitable margin right so looking for more ways to skin the same cat in a certain way but also too at the same time to create much more of a value proposition i mean if you go on a low-cost carrier what you're actually paying for normally is your airline seat so if you want anything more than an airline seat you want a meal you want extra baggage allowances you want a preferred check-in you actually pay extras. The airline industry calls them ancillaries. And I'll give you a classic example because I was actually doing some work in France and Spain a few years ago and I saw Ryanair had a real butte fare which was going from Marseille to Madrid. It was 20 euros. And I thought, gee, that sounds really good. The truth was by the time you drove the 70 kilometres out to the airport where that flight was going from, you then had to pay for your luggage. The 20 euros finished up ballooning to 150 euros, so I decided to take the train instead, which was much nicer, it has to be said. So 
we have to be very careful about, you know, as I say, marketing can look a bit, particularly in the low-cost carrier field, can look pretty shonky um, at times <laughs> because, you know, you see the ad saying fares from $20 and you think, well, I think I've seen fares for $0 as well. So I'm like, how how does that work? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, hotels used to do that as well too. In fact, they finished up the people who actually ran those types of marketing programs finished up being thrown in jail for a while. We don't want to do that. (laughs) Yeah. But, I mean, the fact of the matter is is that, that the travel industry or the tourism industry is going to need to be a little bit more hard nosed about how it prices itself because otherwise it will price itself out of existence just to make the consumers happy for a few hours. Yeah. So you've got to balance what's good for the consumer but also to, you know, what is going to make a business actually operate in a viable fashion. Yeah, I think we're living in such interesting times. You could also call it unnerving times. Mm. I guess more than ever people are trying to look for any clues as to what the future might look like. So what you've done in your new book is looked back in history and what can we learn from previous cases on crisis response in tourism? Mm. And you've pulled out 20 case studies. I guess what were some of the ones that stood out to you that had lessons we can learn navigating this pandemic? Well, there's each case study, of course, has its own lessons. I think one that was really interesting, and I say this because I was directly involved in it, was the recovery of Nepal from the earthquake of 2015. What was really interesting about that particular case study is that it was actually driven by volunteer tourism. Now, volunteer tourism is not always an answer for every place that has a natural disaster. So, for example, if we look at what's happening in Tonga right now, It's going to take a long time to recovery, but Tonga is not really a big tourism area, nor does it have very, very much in the way of an infrastructure for volunteerism. Nepal did. Nepal had lots of volunteer programs going for over 30 or 40 years. So when the earthquake struck and there was a desperate need for medical expertise, engineering expertise, building expertise. A lot of people who had a great deal of sympathy for what happened in Nepal were attracted to it and they could be easily accommodated by the existing volunteer program. That also, of course, led to those volunteers going to Nepal and saying, well, actually, it's not quite as bad as we were led to believe by the media. And the interesting thing, I know when I went there in 2015, I ran some seminars over in Nepal, I truly expected Kathmandu to be flattened because that's where I was actually doing most of my work. And Kathmandu certainly sustained some damage, no question about that, but it was definitely not flattened and things were recovering actually quite well and it was really important for the Nepal tourism industry to get that message out to the people. Also, too, what often happens are media reports about something that happened in a country, so you assume the entire country has been affected. In the case of Nepal, it was 15% of the country was directly affected. It has to be said, including the most populated areas. So Kathmandu, the capital, was right in the centre of the problem area, but 85% of Nepal was untouched. So it was important to get that message out to people. And... Interestingly enough, with natural disasters especially, people actually feel because a natural disaster can happen anywhere, anytime, at any place, people feel a certain degree of sympathy and they definitely did for Nepal and 
one of the reasons for that is Nepal's been always been a very good global citizen. You know, if you look at UN peacekeeping forces, you always find Nepalese amongst them. So Nepal's been a good global citizen, and because of that, a lot of people wanted to really help Nepal. So there were a few things going for it. The other thing which was really interesting, and this applies to a lot of recoveries, was the incredible use of celebrities. And in Nepal, there were three celebrities who actually shone out. Um, One of them you would consider a bit of a surprise. So we actually had Hollywood actress Susan Sarandon, who encouraged Americans to come, Jackie Chan, who, of course, is hugely popular in China and Hong Kong, encouraged Chinese and people from Hong Kong to come and, you know, do their thing for Nepal. The one that worked actually out best at the time, probably wouldn't right now, is Prince Harry. Prince Harry was amazing, and he went to Nepal for a couple of weeks, and he was encouraging people to do volunteer tourism. I have to say this is pre-Megan, so... <laughs> so, so What Nepal- are you saying there, David? <laughs> well, all, all, I'm I'm, <laughs> all I'm saying is that basically Prince Harry is not as popular a figure in the Commonwealth now as he was in 2015 and 2016 when he actually went to Nepal. He was a much-loved figure. Yeah, he was a bit of a rascal at certain times, but, I mean, basically one thing that he was very much into was trying to help people overcome difficult periods and, you know, his involvement in the Invictus Foundation and many other things that he was actually doing very actively before he became the Duke of Sussex were really seen as great things. So quite often when you're trying to get a recovery going, certainly you need other people to blow your trumpet. So if you have a problem, I learnt this obviously the hard way. I ran the Israel Government Tourist Office in Oceania for 12 years. One of the most difficult things that we had to do at that time was to promote Israel during an intifada. And even though tourists were not really victims in the intifada, when you're seeing the news every night and you're seeing violence between Israelis and Palestinians, you think, well, that's about the last place in the world I want to go to. Even in dealing with COVID-19, it's been interesting that some countries have actually tried very hard to attract tourists because, and this has been a really big problem which hasn't been talked about, there are about probably 40 countries in the world whose economy is very based on tourism. We have places like the Maldives, we've got places, most of the Caribbean countries. So they're trying very hard to present a case that we're a safe So the type of messages that are coming out in COVID-19 is not that we're the coolest destination or the hippest destination or we got the best parties, but we're a safe destination and we also happen to be beautiful as well. And it's interesting, I wasn't at all surprised, for example, that Fiji was opening up properly to a number of nationalities well and truly ahead of New Zealand because even though tourism is very important to New Zealand, New Zealand has a much more diversified economy than Fiji does. So just to give you an idea, I mean, Fiji, which is one of our nearest neighbours, 45% of their economy is based on tourism. So over the COVID period, all of that part of the economy has basically been held on ice. And those people who are working in the tourism and hospitality industry needed to be redeployed into other areas. So it's been very difficult for Fiji and for other countries like them. I think in the South Pacific, Vanuatu is another place very heavily dependent on tourism. Samoa, probably a little bit less so. Tonga, even less so. But 
certainly Fiji, Vanuatu, New Caledonia, quite a lot of other places in the Southwest Pacific very heavily dependent on tourism. Even Singapore, which has one of the you know most diverse economies in the whole of Southeast Asia, I mean, 10 to 12% of its economy up until COVID uh, erupted was tourism, which is a pretty big percentage of a country like Singapore. No doubt. I mean, this has wide-ranging impacts. Um, mm. You did talk about the role of the media. Yes. And also in the book, this is what you mentioned, I, and I'm part of the media, although sure. it's a trade publication that I write for, so it's a little different. We're I feel like to... I'm part of it. I've been interviewed <laughs> by so many. I've been interviewed by so many you know, different platforms on the media over the last couple of years. Between the Australian bushfires and COVID, it's been, you know, pretty much nonstop. Indeed, just because this has been such a newsworthy thing, we're all keeping our eyes on it. Our lives are so different now. Mm. And travel was, you know, considered in the past as an ordinary part of living or at least, you know, a right that everybody had as long as you had the funds to do it. But, you know, a trade publication is trying to see the industry supported and recover. But if you can tell us about mainstream media and, you know, how well it's done to inform the public of what's happening and put things in perspective, what's been the trend historically and is it any different today? Look, the mainstream media has had a very mixed bag. A lot of media, of course, are very heavily dependent on tourism advertising. An interesting case in point was when SARS first came out, we're talking about pandemics, CNN and the BBC, which were both sponsors of the Pacific Asia Travel Association. And in the beginning of SARS, which was really, when we talk about pandemics, was a complete tiddly compared to COVID-19. There were 8,000 people who were diagnosed with SARS and there were 800 deaths. So it was a lot more the mortality rate was a lot higher, but the number of people who got it was very, very small. And this was 2002, this is 2003 it was actually. So what was interesting there is that those two media outlets and, and many others were saying, oh, shock, horror, SARS is above us. There were pictures of people in Hong Kong running around in surgical masks and in Singapore. The reality was 95% of the cases in Hong Kong actually occurred in five apartment blocks. <laughs> the media never mentioned that. You know, SARS was rampant in Hong Kong. Then it had the same sort of thing about Singapore. You know, SARS was rampant in Singapore. There were a few hundred cases. It wasn't that terrible. And in fact, there was no need for governments to close borders or do all the things that they've actually done there. Parter pointed out to both BBC and CNN that about 20% of your advertising comes from the travel industry and what the way you're reporting SARS is killing us. <laughs> so what are you going to do about Ooh. it? So they basically put the hard word on the media to say, okay, let's be part of the solution rather than only reporting the problem. And in fairness to both CNN and the BBC, they did change the nature of their reporting. But also, too, they allowed to run free of charge a lot of advertising campaigns by the different countries in Southeast Asia to say, welcome back, we have overcome SARS. And SARS basically ceased, practically disappeared by about June, July of 2003. So the media actually took part in a recovery campaign. And it's very interesting with some what we find with some types of crises in tourism, and I particularly refer to natural disasters, local the media in the country which is affected by the natural disaster is unbelievably supportive of the communities that have been damaged. Yes, they'll report on the damage, but they'll also say, 
we as the local media, and this is certainly true in the Australian bushfires 2019-20, that the Australian media and particularly the ABC were working very hard to, with Tourism Australia and the state tourism boards, to put together a campaign saying if you really want to support these affected communities, provided that they're okay with it, with visitors, come and visit them, spend some of your money there. The interesting thing is that media from further away, and I can tell you this is a, just as a personal story, I was actually contacted by CNN during the Australian bushfires when I was actually up in the country. And the lady who interviewed me, she said, I hear Australia's been burnt to the ground. <laughs> and I actually <laughs> smiled when she said that. And I said, if that were the case, you know, you'd be talking to me as a skeleton rather than as a person. So it was an opportunity in a sense. The story had, of course, all the visuals of fires, burnt out houses and burnt out forests and, you know, all the sort of damage that goes with a bushfire. My challenge in a sense, I guess, was, and it's not a propaganda thing, it's just these are the facts on the ground is, yes, we had a terrible fire, yes, we've sustained an awful lot of damage, but the loss of life considering was, thank heavens, relatively small. But more importantly... These are the parts of Australia that actually had the fire and you'll notice that large parts of Australia didn't and there's actually a method in risk management or crisis management called the isolation strategy which is when you say this is the extent of the problem, the rest of it here is the larger context in which there is no problem. And Yeah, I don't see uh, unfortunately a lot of that happening in the in the media though i mean it's the nature of the media sometimes you know it just likes mm. to sensationalize stuff just because that does you know, that is headline grabbing of and course. that's the reason why people buy papers that's why people tune into the news although some people have now switched off the news entirely because it's just too depressing well interestingly enough when i was researching my thesis i had the privilege of interviewing rupert murdoch now some people might not think that is a privilege but i asked him a very direct <laughs> question and I guess he would know the answer to this better than anybody practically, what makes news? And he pointed out to me in a single sentence, here are 10 things, seven of them are bad, one of them's neutral, two of them are good. <laughs> and in a sense, I think he really got it right. So, you know, we talk about what makes news, scandal, crime, if it bleeds, it leads political yeah, you know anything think, that's bad will always be a lead in in any and there's a there's a emotional journey that they take you through as well i mean if you just watched any tv news channel hmm. most likely they'll start with something terrible that's happened you know and then they go through the news something a little bit less terrible and then it goes down right to the bottom where you start to head towards the weather you'll get some nicer stories. So it's this emotional journey that they kind of take you through. They're, so they're yeah. very intentional about, you know, oh, yeah. what they're doing. They and, f- I usually finish a news report with a puppy dog story. Yes, or, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty typical. And, or what did this cute little toddler oh, do? Oh, my goodness. It frustrates yeah. me so often. And, I mean, I remember also even, like, pitching a particular story when I was doing some public relations work and – this other person said, and this person is not from the media, but another public relations filter and said, well, do you have two cute kids to like two cute twins that we can profile? I'm like, that's not the story. <laughs> <laughs> you might think that's the bait, but that's like, that's an awful bait for this story. I'm like, yeah. crikey. But I also remember a former colleague at the ABC telling us about 
you know, trying to protect herself from shooting. You mentioned the Intifada and, you know, the Middle East. And I think this was in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, if I remember correctly. And there were bullets flying across the street and only two streets away, there was nothing but people enjoying themselves at coffee shops mm. as though nothing was happening. Yeah. So, you know, that whole experience was so surreal for this former colleague, but you know, which story do you end up telling? And unfortunately, yeah. because the news needs headlines, we know which one it's going to be. And I'm always telling people, you know, just be mindful of that because I still have friends who just take everything that they are seeing on the news hook, line, and sinker. And I'm like, you're not asking the questions and you're only getting things from one source. You need to make up your mind over several sources. And that is unfortunately work when people are too busy nowadays that you know their schedules overloaded so it is it is tough i do understand but just you know take it with a bit of a pinch of salt because yeah you just don't know in terms of how it's impacting tourism as well yeah the media certainly has a huge influence on people's perceptions of tourism destinations and tourism companies so again it's another example that came into my book i did a little case study on the united airlines issue with this guy who had been thrown off a plane, I mean, literally bodily for Dr. David Dow, 2017. And it went viral in China because even though the guy who was being thrown off the plane was Vietnamese, you know, he was Asian, so therefore it must have been Chinese. And and I think in WeChat, there were 150 million hits in a single day. It was really bad. Talk about bad PR for, uh, for United. I mean, United flies millions of people. What happened in this particular case is, as many airlines do, they overbook. So what often happens in this particular case, this particular doctor, he had patients to see the next morning in Louisville, Kentucky. And unfortunately, what United did was that they not only bodily threw this guy off the plane, they broke a couple of his teeth and they you know, caused a lot of injuries and it was disgusting yeah. what, they, what they did. The CEO of United said, well, this was just a case of reaccommodation of a passenger. So the Terrible. we couldn't give a hoot mentality of the management made a bad incident a lot worse. And the impact of that, of course, was that there was a drop in our United share price, a huge drop in United share price. A lot of people decided they were never going to fly them again. Its public image was really disgusting. The only reason it managed to survive, in a sense, is because there are only about three or four major airlines in the United States. You know, people didn't have a choice and people eventually forgot it. But the interesting irony of that is that this CEO, Mr. Oscar Munoz, he was retained as CEO for some years after this particular incident, <laughs> which I guess is not a criticism of him, but it's it's an interesting explanation about the culture of that organisation. Yeah, it's kind of shocking and not at the same time. Oh, yeah. And I'm sure any other airline would probably have a similar story. It's just that this one completely blew out in a sense because the media publicised it so well. And of course, the CEO made it very easy for the media to publicise it because his attitude was so wrong. Yeah, well, I think he deserved that one. Absol- oh, absolutely. <laughs> I wouldn't blame the media for that one. No, no, <laughs> not at all. all. <laughs> but I think what often happens is that when you look at certain destinations, if there's a problem in a destination, it'll be covered. So if you have riots in a particular place one day 
And even though the rest of the year there were never any riots, people will focus, oh, I don't want to go to that destination because they had a riot there yeah. someday. And I, and I saw it on the news. <laughs> yeah, so people have a long memory for those things. They do. And I think, you know, one of the challenges, I guess, in a sense, for destination managers in particular is to try and make sure that they're getting their case across. You know, one of the problems that occurred, for example, in COVID, and this was particularly with the Ruby Princess incident in Sydney in March 2000 was that the media had open slather to criticise the cruise industry and they blamed the cruise industry for all those passengers disembarking. The truth was that that was actually the responsibility of the state government. But because the cruise industry was too shy to go onto the media to put their case, there was only one side of the debate being issued. So that's very important as well too. One thing I learned even, you know, and sometimes it was pretty rough, you know, marketing Israel in the middle of an intifada, but <laughs> I was never afraid to talk to the media. So even if I got a hard, got, you know, hard talk type interview, it was a matter of saying, well, look, okay, yes, I recognise all these problems, but here's the other side of the story and your viewers can make up their minds from there. Yeah. And theoretically, anyway, the media's responsibility is to get at least two sides of the story uh, in order to provide balance. Sure. And I think most of the time they try, but sometimes we get some travel industry professionals who don't feel the confidence to go onto the media and actually put their point of view. And let's face it, a lot of people who are CEOs of company are not trained uh, public relations people or journalists. Yeah. And the other issue also is that there is so much fear about saying the wrong thing that they'll take a week to get back to you with a two paragraph or two sentences, a statement from a top level CEO that has gone through multiple levels of checkpoints. And by that time, the story's gone. Yes. You know, it's too late for a deadline. (laughs) So that's something I think we can seriously learn from as an industry. Yeah, I mean, lesson number one that I try to teach people about dealing with a crisis is what you do in the first hour of the crisis matters more than anything you do. Yeah, but right now we are two years into, almost two years into the pandemic. (laughs) Well, mind you, this one keeps changing all the time. That is true. But how do you, you know, I mean, you you talked about using um, celebrities, the need for other people to blow your trumpet, you know, when you're trying to recover. Mm. At this time, though, I mean, you've got, countries around the world who are trying to recover, they're all deciding when is the right time to do so, as in the case of Western Australia and New Zealand, they're taking a little bit longer than the rest of the world, maybe, but people are trying to strategize and manage it. They're all doing this at the same time. So if everyone started to use the same, I guess, strategies, trying to bank on their, you know, their safety or trying to get celebrities, I mean, how, how do we start standing out? How do we start saying, you know, come here, it'll be worth your while, choose me. So how do destinations start to go around those? Very good question, Adeline. One of the key questions in destination marketing. And one thing that Tourism Australia, I have to say, has done very well is that even at the time when it's difficult to get to Australia, what they're doing is putting the idea in people's mind is that when the borders are open and the time is right, this is a fantastic. So it's actually putting in people's mind the desire to travel because if you only wait to do your promotion when the borders are open, you've already missed the bus. So, you know, you've got to get ahead of the curve, so to speak, and let people know that, yes, this is a fantastic destination. This is what you can look forward to. 
when the time is right. And it's very frustrating from a marketer's point of view because obviously you don't get immediate results from that. But then again, you're creating the aspiration. And there's several stages of people travelling to a destination. Firstly, they have to be aware of it. Secondly, you have to create a feeling that this is a place you must go to, creating the aspiration. And then, you know, when the door is open, is to say, right, come on in, uh, don't muck around. I mean, it's been really difficult because the idea of, for nearly every other crisis prior to COVID-19, was that you tell people to come right away. This way, you have to build the desire and build the expectation. And the results will come because sometimes you'll find that places that opened opened up too early had to close again. This is a classic case with the travel bubbles in Europe especially is that a lot of places like Spain and Greece said, yeah, come on in, it's fun. And then they found that those countries were deluged with COVID-19, so they had actually done it too early. They had to close the door and that actually created a lot of perceptual problems. Mm. So trying to do it in stages is the right thing to do. It's just that you, <laughs> you're not getting instant gratification from, uh, you know, as for being a marketer and yeah. doing that, doing it that way. Playing devil's advocate just for a little bit. Um, sure. I mean, you highlighted that Tourism Australia has done a pretty good job, but what Tourism Australia has done is kept advertising. And a number of the bigger destinations um, have done so. They've stayed in places like China, which was one of the biggest markets prior to COVID. But a lot of other destinations, smaller destinations especially, have not been able to keep advertising or keep having a station or a point of contact and keep the dreaming going for their destination. So if you know you were working for one of those smaller destinations where you're like whoa i have a huge wall to climb are there uh-huh. shortcuts are there you know little ninja hacks there certainly <laughs> are yes well having worked on a negligible budget for 12 years when i ran the israel government tourist office i found that the best way that you can generate publicity is to create news one thing that that a lot of organizations a lot of tourism organizations are not really good at is actually having a media strategy and the most important media strategy is to build up a network of contacts within the media earn their trust by providing interesting and useful bits of news which may or may not be used and then i guess just making yourself available for for interviews now and i also found too is that you can actually write articles for trade magazines or for travel sections of major newspapers or online blogs or social media. So you don't actually have to have a lot of money to get a message out. You just need to be a little bit more creative. But I think the important thing, certainly what worked for me, both running the Israel Government Tourist Office and the Eastern Mediterranean Tourism Association, was really trying to build trust Um on one hand, and I guess also to making it clear to journalists that you're available if they're short of a story, which is really the case for travel writers. But if they are short of a story is that, you know, you're happy to either provide the story or lead them to the people who can provide the story about your destination. Yeah. So you don't necessarily have to have a lot of money to get out there. I found actually it was very interesting with Israel. We used to have a hosting department, as Australia does, where you could actually invite, say, a crew from a travel program like Getaway or a blogger or somebody like that to visit. And that actually cost very little money for 
the host organisation, it was seen as a fantastic value if you could get, you know, a crew of, from Getaway on a free flight, get them hosted in the country, they get to see it for themselves. And it's really important, I think, when you really want to make sure that people have a good image rather than the National Tourist Office or the State Tourist Office saying, our destination is wonderful, mm. no one's going to believe that. You're paid <laughs> to say that. Okay. You need somebody else who has got some credibility in the market that you're talking at yep. to actually get that message across. Yep, some social proof. Yeah, and it is. But you don't really have to have a vast budget. I mean, Tourism Australia has been lucky. It's had some pretty good budgets, probably because our Prime Minister was a former head of Tourism Australia, he actually understands some of the mechanisms that go on in Tourism Australia, and that's great for Tourism Australia. Not Very few countries have their Prime Minister as a, as a former head of the National Tourism Marketing Board. So uh, Yeah, although the, tourism's you know. not, not doing as great. I mean, we're just with I mean, what we talked about at the start of this conversation, which is, you know, all the hardline policing and the Novak Djokovic saga and a couple of other things. Yeah. You know, there are questions as to whether shouldn't a, a prime minister who has had a previous portfolio as a tourism minister should know a little bit better. But and who knows, because I'm not in the government corridor. So who knows who he's having to wrestle down certain policies with or, or whatever is yeah. that case. Well, Scott Morrison was never the tourism minister. He was the CEO of Tourism Australia. Oh, that's that's true. Sorry, I stand corrected. Which is why his political enemies refer to him as Scotty from marketing because <laughs> <laughs> because he was marketing, the, he was literally marketing the country. So fantastic background. But it's true, when you have negative political coverage and certainly the Djokovic saga or the Djokovic fiasco, whatever you want to call it, was very, very, very bad for Australia's international image. I think there's no getting around that. And we can throw around who where the fault was lying at that one, and I'll leave that to other people to decide that. But certainly it was a very bad look for Australia. There's no getting around that. I guess what they're hoping is that the Australian Open will be such a fantastic tournament and it seems to be very exciting that that may somewhat defray that criticism. Look, anything that makes a country look bad is, uh, does have an impact indirectly on tourism. There's no question about that. Yeah, We're not seen as a welcoming country. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. I mean, Novak is the world number one. So just the absence sure. of the world number one under those circumstances, I think, has left a bit of a bitter yeah. taste in the mouth, no matter how, you know. Yeah. If you're a tennis purist, I 100% agree with you because, uh, you know, you want to have a tournament. The whole idea of Wimbledon or the US Open or the French Open or the Australian Open being a Grand Slam event is that you have the top people. And if you don't have the top people, obviously it's compromised. Yeah. I mentioned at the start of this interview, just as we're bringing our conversation to a close, we talked about how it seems like the future of tourism at the moment is being decided by government decisions rather than anything that is a natural disaster, a time of war or terrorism, you know, which describes most of your case studies. But yes. these are man-made decisions that are ongoing. They've kept changing and have kept contradicting each other. Is that the future of tourism? Because if so, that's pretty sad. <laughs> yeah, well, look, I think there's no question about it that of all the crises that we've dealt with in the tourism industry over the last 50 years, and I've, I've studied a lot of them, this has been the most challenging of all. And I think, in a sense, one of the reasons that it's been the most challenging of all is that instead of allowing the market and perception to guide 
how people's decisions on whether they go back to travelling, it's been left very much to governments. And governments are not very necessarily very good at this. I mean, if we even look at our own country, you know, the behaviour of certain states has been dubious, to say the least. When you have lockdowns going into hundreds of days, preventing activity and then asking people to sacrifice even more, it gets a lot worse. We don't really have a consistent approach to deciding, for example, whether there should be a lockdown, whether there should be quarantine, how long it should be, whether a border should be open and closed. It's all very higgledy-piggledy and it varies an awful lot from one, not only from one country to another, but from one jurisdiction to another. As we've seen in Australia with Western Australia, sometimes the behaviour of the Queensland government, sometimes the behaviour of the Victorian government and others. I mean, no governments, uh, no government has come out of this smelling like a rose. In fact, it's been very problematic. So I think probably what we need to do, particularly in relation to pandemics. And firstly, we need to establish what the definition of pandemic is. The World Health Organization actually really stuffed that up right from the beginning because even by their own definition, they should have been declaring a pandemic in around about February of 2020 and they left it till March and by then it was already too late. So we need to have probably a lot more of a global approach to what is the best way globally we can manage this? Because this, let's face it, there are hardly any countries in the world that haven't had COVID. I think even Antarctica managed to get a case. Even Tonga, I think, got one case. I think the only place that probably didn't get one is in North Korea, and I'm not quite sure what that is. That probably it would have been nuked out of existence. Oh, <laughs> but, I think there are several theories going around, but they are theories, let's just yeah. say. Anyway, I mean, the thing is, this has been a genuinely global situation. So it should have been approached much better globally than it probably has. The World Health Organization should have been probably taking a much more leading role. Mind you, the United Nations is not always the best place to deal with global problems, but in the health area, they've actually been quite good historically. So we should have been looking at you know, what is best practice at dealing with this? And we've actually had some cases, we could have learnt a lot of lessons from the past with H1N1 or swine flu, because swine flu has a lot of things in common with COVID. Firstly, it's got a fairly low mortality rate. Secondly, it was very widespread. It is also a SARS-type condition. Um, But you would be comparing that to Omicron rather than the first cases of COVID. Yeah, I would. That's very, very true. But I mean, the thing is that the way in which uh, swine flu was handled was treated more as a hazard than it was as a crisis. And I think the thinking of a lot of governments is to say we have to learn to live with COVID-19. The lessons on how that was actually done are actually very evident if you look at how the world actually treated swine flu because the only time it was regarded as a crisis is when it first broke out in Mexico in early 2009. And after that, nobody got hot and bothered about it, Yeah, which was interesting. And probably had we been a little bit more like that, there's also a tendency to ascribe every death that's attributed to COVID-19. Now, you know, and I've been hearing the report, sometimes you get a person who died at age 99. Well, there could have been any one of 50 different things that might have killed that person. And COVID may very well have been a contributing factor. But we need to get a little bit more accuracy about how we actually decide 
who who was a victim of COVID and who wasn't. Yeah. Because that's exaggerated the fear factor. Yeah. I, well, if you want to go down that rabbit hole, there's a lot of very selective data out there. And unfortunately, mm. that's caused a lot of panic and it served, um, you know, specific points of view, whether you're on this side. I mean, it's everywhere. All camps have been subjected to those kinds of data errors or speculative data. So, and that's what is has been making everything so confusing and it's thrown us into panic and it's not helped government. It's not helped us as people. It's not helped tourism at all. But, you know, I guess we're just waiting for the higher ups to sort all these out and hope that, you know, somebody gets your act together. But, you know, while we're waiting for tourism to become, I guess, more normal again, how do you suggest we maximize our tourism experiences or are there other ways we can enjoy what tourism gave us, you know, while we're waiting for borders yeah. to open up and flights to take off again? Well, one of the positive things that have actually come out of COVID is people have actually been forced to experience their own backyard. And it's interesting. I mean, I live in a small village about 400 kilometres away from Sydney and we've had record numbers of tourists actually coming to that small village simply because they couldn't cross the borders into Queensland or South Australia or Victoria or any other places. So they started to explore their own state and they found out, oh, these places are very, very nice. So that's been a good outcome. You know, in China, it's been extraordinary. The Chinese people have basically stopped travelling internationally since early 2020. And yet domestic tourism in China is absolutely going through the roof, which is very sad for global tourism because, you know, China up till 2019 represented 10% of international tourism movements. Now it represents practically zero. But domestic tourism in China has been absolutely amazing. And, of course, you know, it's a large country, very diverse, culturally diverse, and lots of things to see and do in lots of different places. bit more difficult for very small countries, you know, but, you know, even if you take a place like Singapore, and I remember the first time I went to Singapore with my wife, we stayed there for six weeks and people said to me, what were you doing in Singapore for six weeks? And <laughs> and I said, I've had the cultural experience of my life. It's been brilliant. Sometimes you just need to change your view. It's not only big that's great, but it could also be small and diverse that's great as well. It could, although my friends in Singapore are complaining it's high time they let us out of this country. <laughs> well, I, I can imagine. I can obviously run out. They've been there all their lives, so they're very ready. <laughs> sure, yeah. I mean, look, six weeks is pretty small compared to that. But, I mean, it's interesting that you can actually do interesting things in a small place over a, yeah. an extended period of time. And, of course, if you've got a social, you know, if you've got a circle of friends and acquaintances and family, I mean, all those sorts of factors come into it. I mean, it's interesting, the people who are most desperate to travel are the ones who want to reconnect with their relatives in all over the world. That's something that this particular crisis has really, really hit very hard. And, and I was just going to say very quickly, you know, people are prepared to put up with all sorts of tests and bureaucratic hurdles to be able to do that. Indeed, and I think they're the ones who will be leading the recovery. Yeah. Your new book is called Tourism Crisis and Destination Recovery. I'll put a link to the book in the show notes. Congratulations on the book. Thank you. Which is an amazing effort. And the easiest way for people to connect with you if they wanted to, would that be your LinkedIn address? LinkedIn address is fine, but also to my email, which is david.beirman 
at uts.edu.au. And I also have a Facebook page as well too. Oh, you do? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For a technical Luddite, yeah, I managed to get two things up. (laughs) Fantastic. David, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. And likewise. You always expand my horizons and it's a really good peek into the future a little bit of hand holding so appreciate that thank you so much it's a pleasure Adeline lovely to talk to you as well too all the best and hey thanks for listening I hope you got something out of the conversation let me know if there was something you agreed or didn't agree with in this episode email me at uponarrivalpodcast at gmail.com oh and don't forget to subscribe rate and review this show if you like it That would help other people find this show, and I'd most appreciate that. I'll be back next week to uncover more stories and strategies for a successful future. Till then, cheers. Cheers.